Good morning. I'm Ann Schindler, and this is First Coast Connect. It's the halfway point in Florida's legislative session. So what is and is not happening in Tallahassee? We check in with a senior state political reporter to find out what bills are moving ahead or dead on arrival. Later, drawing inspiration from a local educator and the night skies. But first, we're joined on the line by Florida politics reporter A.G. Gankarski, who cannot be here in person simply because the committee schedule in Tallahassee right now is a round-the-clock event. Uh, A.G., I can see by the number of stories that you're posting each day that the news is coming fast and furious right now. Yeah, we're at the midpoint of session right now, and that means committees are in full swing. The subcommittees are are wrapping up. The full committees, you're kind of on the last ride to get bills through. So there's a lot of urgency. Uh, We've also got floor sessions and, of course, the stuff the governor's doing. Um, So it's as busy as it can be right now. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you, as always. Uh, I think everyone was curious about the governor's return to the state after weeks of ultimately unsuccessful campaigning uh, in other places like Iowa. What is it like there now that DeSantis is back? Um, The governor's going around. He's doing his press conferences. He's got one today in Fort Pierce. And um, he's trying to make news, so he's still uh, making comments on national issues. Um, he's also weighing in on legislation. Um, he he backs a proposal for homeless camps um, that actually has a committee meet hearing today at 10 a.m. Um, you know, and he's he's basically doing the things he was doing in 2022 in that you know he's got one foot in state policy, but the other foot in you know trying to maintain his national. Um, image. Um, it's it's not helping that he's out of the presidential race as far as that goes. He's not getting the uh, repeated bookings on Fox News, Newsmax, things like that. But, you know, he, he seems to be playing the long game. Uh, reports are that he's got a political team that he's going to keep, which to me suggests that he's looking at a 2028 race. Um, you know, that's that's the thing that is logical from there. Uh, theoretically, Donald Trump could put him on the Supreme Court or something, but if Donald Trump gets elected president, but I, I think DeSantis is looking at his political future outside of Tallahassee, but he said um, just yesterday the sole focus is on being governor for the next three years. So I, I think the way he's going to play it is kind of like he played it before he ran for president, uh, trying to score conservative victories that he can message on nationally down the road. Um, he's still a presence and, you know, he'll still have veto power in the budget. So he still has control over the legislature. I think some people thought that maybe the kind of culture war atmosphere would be dialed back a little bit now that he's not on the same national stage that he was. Um, but you're not seeing that in Tallahassee in terms of his influence or his, um, the positions that he's taking on other issues. No, I mean, I'm, I'm not seeing much in the way of amelioration. Uh, he, he seems to be more concerned about laws um, actually passing legal muster. He's seen a lot of a lot of the bills he supported um, face challenges in court. So, you know, he's talking about bills. He says he's worried about them sticking now, which um, I, I think is is a, a sign that he realizes that um, you know it's not just his word and not just his courts, but it's got to jive with with the federal framework too. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he's a little bit more cautious. I mean, obviously, but he's not really, you know, humbled in the way you might expect somebody who, you know, ran a $168 million presidential campaign without carrying a single county in Iowa, who had to fold it before New Hampshire because he's polling around 5% there. Um, so, you know, just like when he ran for Senate in 2016 and then got out of that race to run for House again. Um, he's he's got a pretty short memory when it comes to his own setbacks. He's resilient, and um, he continues to be a force in the Capitol. We're talking with political reporter A.G. Gankarski about what's happening uh, at the halfway point of Florida's legislative session. If you have questions for A.G., you can give us a call at 904-549-2937, or you can email us at firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. You can also message us on Facebook or Instagram, and you can also tag us on X at FCC on air. Uh, AG, I want to talk about one crazy session headline that came from Representative Angie Nixon from Jacksonville. Uh, She tweeted that she was accused of stealing food 
from the members lounge. What was what what happened there? Yeah, there there was um you know, a miscommunication or a microaggression, depending on how you want to interpret it. Um, Representative Nixon was getting her lunch. Uh, she got a text saying that she hadn't paid her tab. Um, you know, about 25 minutes later, she got a text saying, sorry, we made a mistake. Um, that didn't reassure Representative Nixon at all. Um, you know, she sees in the context of a lot of microaggressions over the course of, you know, speakership of Paul Renner. You know, ironically enough, Paul Renner actually, you know, ran for the state house in some of the same areas that Nixon represents right now before he moved to Palm Coast. But, you know, Renner gave her a bad office assignment in the basement for a while. Uh, she was dealing with a rat issue in her office. Uh, during the uh, Israel spe uh, special session, uh, she introduced legislation calling for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. Um, and she was pilloried for that legislation. Um, so she's she's been dealing with a lot of personal issues regarding House leadership in Tallahassee. And, um, you know, the, the, the lunch glitch, I think, if it were outside of that con that context, she might have been able to overlook it as, as just, you know, an error. But I think in the context of what she's experienced in, in the last year and a half or so, um, she she saw it as yet another attempt to belittle her and make her feel less than. And, you know, that, that story blew up last week. Um, and it's something where I had a Republican reach out to me and say, you know, I had to deal with this too. But it's kind of a different context when your bills are being heard, when you're being treated seriously, versus when you're treated as a punching bag by, you know, the, the majority white, majority Republican legislature um, that, you know, seems gleeful at times in um, going after people coming from different groups. It's worth um, mentioning, as you did in your reporting, that the, the note that she initially got was from the, the House Sergeant at Arms, so basically a, a kind of a law enforcement official. Um, and it originated because someone took a picture of her in the, you know, cafeteria area, basically with a separate plate holding a salad. Um, and accusing her of taking, you know, more food than she was allowed to take. So it it was, I don't know if we know who took the photo, but she was feeling, she was saying that they were policing plates in the, in the lunchroom. Yeah. And, and the Sergeant of Arms is basically an arm of the Speaker's office. And when I reached out to the Sergeant of Arms to, to get their take, they referred me directly to the Speaker. Um, so, you know, clearly it wasn't their decision. Um, you know, we, we obviously will never know who took the picture. There were also a couple of tacos on the plate too, but, you know, when you're dealing with these 12 hour days in committees and, you know, presenting bills, looking at legislation, looking at late filed amendments and, you know, strike all amendments and things that radically reconfigure this legislation on a daily basis, um, to have to deal with something like, Hey, you didn't bring your lunch money. Um, you know, that, that's a way to, you know, freeze out debate. And, you know, I, I think she should have gotten an apology from the Speaker's office. So the Speaker's office did not apologize. Uh, they just said it was an honest mistake and so on. But um, it, it really does raise questions. I don't know if that would have happened to, say, Dean Black or Wyman Duggan or Jessica Baker or any of the Republicans representing uh, Jacksonville. Um, I, I think it was an Angie Nixon-specific rule. And it was intended to, you know, you know, demonstrate to her that you know, her place in the Florida House. And it, it was, you know, really appalling, you know, for me to see that. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the bills that you're watching from our local legislative delegation. Um, I know one that you've been keeping your eye on is it was introduced by Senator Clay Yarbrough of Jacksonville. Uh, are you talking about the one regarding um, the, the adult club. performance? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Basically, it's a bill for regulating adult performance. It's stripping. It's adult theaters, adult bookstores. I don't know how many of the latter two there are. Um, I, I do know there are still strip clubs around. But basically, it raises the age for any of that uh, working there to 21. Uh, Yarborough's bill, um, it contemplates uh, felony penalties for club owners employing underage new performers. Um, the Senate version, you know, which he's sponsoring, 
as a misdemeanor for uh, club owners who employed as people like in a hostess or a cashier capacity. Uh, it does not punish performers. Um, it, it should be said. It's intended to punish proprietors and the people who profit off of this. And the idea is to stop human trafficking. Uh, there's a house version. And it's a little bit different because, you know, felony penalties for any employees under 21. And, you know, Democrats have pushed back against this. Uh, they've said that, you know, ironically enough, Representative Nixon, she said that adult performance is legitimate work. Um, you know, and you know, people have said that it raises constitutional issues, like you're an adult 18, but you can't uh, perform in this capacity until you're 21. Um, so, you know, it's something that's probably going to get through. I would expect that Yarborough's language will probably be the one that prevails, uh, given the fact that, you know, it's changed via Senate amendment. Um, but, you know, ultimately these bills have to match. So if the Senate passes one or the House version passes, it can come over in messages and the full body can vote on it. But, you know, they can also amend it and send it back so they can see this kind of game of ping pong between the House and the Senate. Uh, that can go all the way to the end of session. So you know, it's something to watch, but it's uh, it's one that's probably going to pass. Uh, one bill that um, caught my eye that Yarbrough is also supporting, Senator Yarbrough, is this so-called cultivated or lab-grown meat. I, I know you're a vegan, AG, but is this bill strange? Is it just a <laughs> bow to the powerful beef lobby? What's happening there with this push to ban it cultivated meat? It is, in fact, a, uh, a a sop to the, the cattle lobby. We we have a cattle industry in the state, as Republicans are saying. You know, most of the state, you know, when you get into the interior, you see a lot of farms, and that includes cattle farms. Uh, cultivated meat, it's still an experimental thing. It's still not really cost-effective for mass production in many ways. Um, you know, it's obviously a, a lab-grown simulation of animal flesh. And um, it's something that Governor DeSantis uh, has said that he supports uh, DeSantis as a candidate and now as a returning governor. Uh, he has said repeatedly that he likes meat. He needs meat. He backs real meat. And, I mean, when I was covering DeSantis on the campaign trail and he was in Iowa, he, uh, you know, raised objections over California standards for the trading of preg pregnant sow. Basically, California mandates that if, you know, pig meat's grown and you know, if you're getting pork in its state, um, the pregnant sows have to have room to turn around in their crate, which is obviously something that's in Florida amendments also, the Florida Constitution. Uh, DeSantis has said that that basically is a woke rule that uh, penalizes farmers. So there's, there's not a lot of concern for animals um, except as, you know, a source of meat in this. But it is concern for the industry. And um, basically, they're trying to nip this in the bud. And it's one of these anti-ESG, anti-quote-unquote woke sort of things that, you know, the Santa Sarah specializes in. We've got a call from Brian uh, with a question for you, AG. Good morning, Brian. Welcome to First Coast Connect. You there, Brian? I think we've lost him. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about a bill that was introduced by... Um, Representative Dean Black of Jacksonville. This is the Confederate Monument Bill we've discussed on this program somewhat previously. Explain what that bill would do, AG, and and where it stands right now in the process. Yeah, there are, there are two different versions of the bill, so I I want to preface it with that. Uh, the Dean Black version is the more watered down of the two. Um, it it no his version no longer has the retroactive. A provision that could punish, um, say, Jacksonville for taking down monuments in 2020 and 2023. Um, the Senate version, which was heard yesterday, sponsored by Jonathan Martin of Lee County, um, that sees retroactivity to 2018, uh, which could give cause for somebody to basically come back to Jacksonville and say, hey, we've got to basically take these monuments, put them back up. Um, the bills have to align. Uh, Dean Black, when he told me about his amendment, he said it reflected a very fluid process in House committees. Um, the Senate version, you know, hasn't seen any amendments and has actually gotten through two committees, including one last night where sponsor Jonathan Martin uh, made some wild comments about Jacksonville specifically. 
accusing the city council of trying to take down monuments and um, saying that the city didn't respect black history, um, which, you know, got uh, pushback from a lot of people that we follow on social media, including, you know, Senator Tracy Davis, who called out the statement for being ignorant. Um, you had a lot of Jacksonville people go out to the Senate hearing. Um, a lot of people you might have seen at our public comment, the pro and con. Um, but the the big news from yesterday's hearing was you had somebody who was supporting the bill say that it basically defended white society, which Republican senators who went on to vote for the bill uh, basically condemned before voting for the bill that he wanted to vote for. Um, you know, basically saying that they were vile comments. Uh, Jennifer Bradley of Clay County uh, said that it was giving your second thoughts about voting for the bill. But in the end, they did. So you know, there's kind of an irony with this. You, you might have some of the most ideologically repellent people in the state uh, supporting this measure with comments, and the senators may object to it, but they're voting for it. And you know, it kind of illustrates the paradox of you know, being a Republican um, you know, you might know better, but you're not going to do better in some cases. And um, I'm curious to see how the House and Senate versions of this legislation are reconciled, because I don't get the sense that there's appetite in the House for a retroactive provision. Uh, so the House version may have to go to the Senate. That may be the one that's adopted. Um, but sponsor Jonathan Martin, after uh, that hearing, uh, he... He gave a very long Nixonian speech saying that he didn't back white supremacy. He wasn't even from the South, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so this is one that nobody wants to own the moral weight of, mm. um, but it's one that uh, is going to have a moral weight if it indeed becomes a law. I want to talk um, a little bit about a, an abortion bill and the, the flag banning bill, but I want to take a couple calls here first. Uh, good morning, J.D. Welcome to First Coast Connect. Good morning. First, I'd like to commend you on filling Melissa Ross's shoes. You're doing an excellent job. I meant to do that the last time I called in. But on this topic of our food, on what's going on in when you pull the curtain back on the beef industry, the pork industry, and the poultry industry, and of course, the farm fish, everyone needs to watch the Netflix documentary, You Are What You Eat. It is the most wonderful in-depth medical eight-week survey where they take identical twins, one on the plant-based diet, one on the carnivorous diet. It will blow your mind what it's like at the end of that eight weeks. Everyone needs to watch You Are What You Eat on Netflix. Thanks and have a great day. Thanks, J.D. Appreciate it. We also have a call, Joe from Atlantic Beach. Good morning, Joe. Welcome to First Coast Connect. Oh, good morning. Uh, the previous caller stole my thunder. <laughs> yeah, if people knew how cruel meat is for the animals, for the environment, and for our waterways, they would be be eating plant-based. And I, I'm glad that they mentioned about uh, the souls and the industry is so cruel that the mom, so mom pig, cannot even turn around and nurse her babies. And it's extremely cruel industry. And if we eat all eight plant-based foods, we will have far less risk for heart disease, diabetes, cancer, and pandemics. So uh, just do check out that documentary which the previous caller mentioned, and also What the Health on Netflix. Not WTH, but What the Health on Netflix. Thank you so much. Great show. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate it. Um, AG, obviously, bills like that do draw, uh, draw a lot of interest. There is a different animal-related bill that Representative Bobby Payne from Palatka has introduced. Tell us a little bit about what that would do. This is a bill that follows the, the tragic death of a Putnam County mail carrier. Right. The dangerous dogs bill. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's interesting. And that's, that's probably a good bill. as they like to say in Tallahassee, uh, requires the department of agriculture and consumer services to create a statewide registry of dangerous dogs. Uh, that would be uh, fed by uh, local animal control agencies. I require uh, the owners of potentially dangerous dogs to, preemptively can find a dog in a fenced yard or a kennel to protect the public. And it's something that, you know, after, you know, the death of that, that mail carrier, I had five dogs attacked her. And uh, it, was, it was a brutal death. Pam Rock was her name. And uh, Miss Rock, um, she had her arm amputated before she died in an attempt to save her. 
and and that didn't work. So it was a brutal attack, a brutal attempt to save her, and an awful death. And you know, as we know, especially in rural areas, um, you know, people do keep dogs, um, you know, tethered to trees and let them run and things like that. And um, so something like this, this is probably a good consumer protection, and it it might have saved Camrock's life if it existed a year ago. The tragic thing that I recall about that was that the owner, I believe, had tried to surrender at least some of the dogs, but there was no space at the at the kennel so, or at the Humane Society there. So, um, Yeah. I mean, it's tough when you're in these rural counties. Uh, they're, they're big counties and they're fiscally constrained, as, as they say. So they don't have the resources even we have here in Jacksonville. So I do want to talk, though, about the abortion bill that the legislature is, is looking at, the, just the abortion issue generally as it's happening in the state. Um, what are people paying attention to in Tallahassee what is happening on that front that people in Jacksonville want to know about? Yeah, I think with the abortion issue, the the, the real um, stuff that's happening is in the Supreme Court this session because they already passed the six-week ban uh, with exceptions, the 15-week ban, the session four, and um, they're waiting on the Supreme Court to weigh in on the legality of the 15-week ban, and if they do that, uh, based on the Dobbs decision of 2022, uh, the six-week ban would be in place in 30 days. Um, so that Supreme Court hearing is pending. Supreme Court is also, right as we speak, talking about a proposed citizens initiative that would protect abortion rights. Um, if It would need 60% of the votes if it got on the ballot. Um, but Ron DeSantis is worried about it. He said that if this gets on the ballot, uh, the activists would be, quote-unquote, loaded for bear. Um, so, you know, that's really something that if the people of the state wanted to upend these new restrictions in abortion law, because remember, it was it was a different climate before uh, the last couple of years, um, then, you know, the, the ballot box may be the place where it happens. Um, so the legislation going in Tallahassee right now, we don't really know where it's going to go. It doesn't seem like it has the same momentum that it's had in the last couple of years. And I, I think with the Citizens Initiative and, you know, the the questions legally about the previous laws, um, it might be a slow walk this session for more abortion changes. But the uh, idea of a Citizens Initiative on abortion, I mean, that really could change the political dynamic in November when it comes to the presidential race. Yeah, I mean, it could. I mean, this could mean a lot to not only uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump, but Rick Scott, uh, his Senate opponent. Um, because you know, it's something that's going to drive out independents, going to drive out Democrats, give them something to vote for, even if they don't like uh, President Biden or, you know, you know, whoever runs against Rick Scott as a Senate candidate. Um, that could actually turn them out. That combined with the uh, cannabis amendment um, that is also mm-hmm. up, uh, potential cannabis, adult use legalization. Uh, that looks like it's going to be on the ballot also. So, you're going to have these issues that in other states have, have changed the electorate, galvanized the vote. I mean, the threshold in this state is 60% for these things. So it's a little more challenging to actually achieve it. But even if you got 57, 58 for legalized abortion, legalized cannabis, you might not get those initiatives through, but you may swing elections Democrats' way. Uh, the question is, though, with Republicans having a 700,000 vote advantage that's growing, um, if if it'll make a difference in the end. I want to ask you about the bill that is, I'm not sure if it's stalled out now, but it's the bill that would uh, ban, for instance, pride flags from schools or government buildings. That has gotten a lot of attention, both locally and nationally. Yeah, that was up in the Senate last night, too, in the Senate committee, and um, I I happened to be covering that one. And it basically, after about an hour of public comment, um, the sponsor... Jonathan Martin, again, of Lee County, um, we're seeing a common theme here, um, you know, basically shut it down and asked for the bill to be temporarily postponed and went to his other committee to present the Confederate Monument Bill. Um, so this may meet some challenges in terms of getting through the process, but, you know, when you get to these nine-hour marathon committee meetings, it's uh, it's possible to shoehorn it in. Um, I, I got the impression that legislators would have voted 
for or against it based on party identification. So it's just a question of getting it to a vote. But the fact that the public comment was so almost uniformly against it, with the exception of maybe one speaker um, who came out from a very right-wing perspective, um, it's not going to be popular if it passes. Um, it's not going to ban things like the imprints of Confederate flags on statues or projections of Confederate flags or pride flags or, or things like that. So it basically just deals with the flags, um, the physical flags, the cloth flags that are actually in front of buildings, in front of members' offices and so We've got a call, Carol, from Jacksonville. Good morning, Carol. Welcome to First Coast Connect. Um, thank you, Ann. I'm concerned about this bill that is um, going to affect homeowners associations and uh, supposedly 15% of the income of homeowners associations would have to be given to community beautification projects. I believe the bill has been introduced by Kimberly Daniels, and I wonder what the chances of this passing, because this would affect a lot of people who live in the Homeowners Association developments in Jacksonville. Thanks for the call, Carol. I'm not familiar with that bill, AG, um, but I do know that there's kind of an ongoing tension between, you know, monies that are collected for the internal maintenance of some communities and then, you know, what is you know, the surrounding communities might have in terms of resources. Is is that something that you're hearing talked about in Tallahassee right now? Um, it's it's not a big talking point necessarily, and this isn't a bill that I'm tracking. But, yeah, I mean, it, it's an ongoing concern. And, you know, I, I think there will be a legislative effort that continues uh, to reconcile these issues. But in terms of the Daniels bill, I, I haven't really been tracking it. Sorry. Um, does she typically, I mean, she's successful. She's always riding the line between Democrat, Republican. How how does she do in Tallahassee, Kimberly Daniels, in terms of being you know, successful on the bill she introduces? You know, she's she's changed since she lost her primary election um, a couple of years back and had to run again in 2022. Um, you know, I think two years off has kept her from siding so much with Republicans on social issues. Uh, she was a big proponent of parental rights. Um, she's no longer the bomb thrower that she was on, on the city council for that one term. Um, she's no longer making the kind of um, arguably anti-Semitic statements that she made from the pulpit uh, before she ran for uh, legislative office in 2011. Uh, so she seems to have mellowed with time. Um, even when she in the 2020 session, uh, she told me she voted with Democrats most of the time, so she didn't know why anybody was primary. Um, but, you know, it's, it's something where I, I think she's figured out how to play the game a little bit better. Mm. But you know, in terms of leading the Democratic caucus or anything like that, I mean, she's not in that position. Um, she's, you know, just kind of there. Just about a minute left. A.G., what else are you going to be watching in the next days uh, and today, too? Well, um, you know, today um, I'm going to continue to watch Ron DeSantis, continue to watch this uh bill regarding homeless camps. Um, that's actually being talked about at 10 o'clock. We talked about it a little bit before. But basically, it's got a new amendment that Sam Garrison and Clay County filed that would exempt fiscally constrained counties from the requirement to have these camps. So something like Putnam County, like we discussed before, they wouldn't have to have the homeless camps that maybe Duval would have to have. It's still an unfunded mandate. It's still a ban on public sleeping, public camping. Um, the Senate version um, also sponsored by Jonathan Martin, doesn't align with that. But um, that's that's the big bill of the day. And um, I'm curious to see how this lands, if it lands. Um, it feels like the differences are reconcilable in the end. But, you know, things happen in, in session. Things happen between the four sessions. So um, that's one that I'm watching. Well, we'll be watching your reporting, A.G. Gankarski, on Florida politics and on Twitter. A lot to cover in the days and weeks ahead. Thank you for being here. Hey, thanks, Sam. Talk to you soon. Okay. Up next, an educator who works to inspire kids to learn through music.
Welcome back. I'm joined now by a man who's managed to marry his passions as an author, educator, entertainer, and rap performer, Vincent Taylor. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. So why are you so passionate about education? You're an educator, but you really bring a special verve to what you do. Um, I think it's very important simply because as a teacher, students are going through our classroom. They're passing us and we have an opportunity to impact them in ways that we don't even realize that they definitely don't realize. So it's very important that they are not only learning what we're teaching, but they are falling in love with what we're facilitating to them. How did you come to education yourself? Tell us a little bit about your background. So it's funny because I did not initially plan to be a teacher. I had a awesome um, college, college counselor and we had a great rapport with one another. And I said, hey, Dr. Badger, how can I take your job? And he said, you want my job? I said, yeah. He said, all right, come to my office. He said, well, first of all, Vincent, if you want to be a college counselor, you first need to have that prerequisite of being a teacher. I said, okay, so that's what I need to do, teach. Well, I went to university in North Florida, got my bachelor's in um, elementary ed, became a teacher, and the rest is history. 28 years later, I'm still in the classroom, a teacher, and I love it. Elementary education primarily, yes. is that right? Yes. And so that is a unique group of kids to connect with. Um, you do a lot of uh, engagement with them on a musical level. Talk about yeah. that, um, how you bring that into the classroom and how you use that as a tool. Okay, well, I learned a long time ago that, you know, to be an effective teacher, there's a lot of variables that's um, necessary, but one especially is being a culturally responsive teacher, and that's just looking at your classroom, looking at the audience and deciding, okay, who are they, what do they love, and bring that. And a lot of my students were in love with hip-hop, and so was I. So I said, okay, well, let me take something that I'm very passionate about and let me create some educational songs. So I looked at the reading standards and I went to the recording studio, recorded 10 songs about reading strategies, and I shared it with my students and they loved it. They loved it. We actually have some of a performance that you did with a character that you've created. And we'll talk about him in a minute named Cornbread uh, yes. and, and some students. Okay. We may or may not have that sound. We'll come back to it in just a minute. I think we'll be able to cue it up in a second. But mm -hmm. tell us, first of all, who is Cornbread? Because he actually performs alongside you. Yes, yes. So first of all, I was um, honored to be one of the special guests at the mayor's um, reading celebration we just had about two weeks ago. And Cornbread was there. Cornbread is just a character that, first of all, it chronicles the life of Isaiah Walker, a.k.a. Cornbread. And it follows him through two different settings. First, at home and at school so that the students can definitely relate to him. So I wanted to find a, a character that was very relatable and someone or a, a character that they could get excited about. And yeah. so he is a kind of young. He's very um, engaging. He yes. is a, uh, performs alongside yes. you. Yes, he's a fourth he's a fourth grader in the book, but when we do presentations all over the country, he comes out as this six, seven foot tall um character that gets the students excited. So I started off with, okay, let's get excited about uh, main idea, context clues, and I have music that goes along with it. And I do that for the first set and then Cornbread comes out and steals the show. The math detective. Yes, yes. So and that's new now. The math detective is the math part that um, connects cornbread to to um, education. I gotcha. Yes. And so a little bit about your own interests. I mean, you had a desire to do music. You were kind of an inspire, uh, aspiring rap performer yourself. Yeah. Oh, man, you went way back. So for <laughs> those of you who don't know, I was once known as Prince Vince. Prince okay? Vince? <laughs> sort of stole that from Fresh Prince. So, you know, Prince Vince. Um, yeah, so I've been going to the studio for years. I love music. And I don't just love, first of all, I'm a writer, so I write the lyrics. But when I analyze songs, I like to look at all the different variables. So I'm not only looking at the the lyrics. I'm listening to the, the track. I'm listening to the background vocals. I'm listening to the ad-libs. And then I'm listening for that one thing that you can't even put your finger on it. But it it illuminates the song. It makes it a, not a nine, but a ten. So we have this thing, um, my daughters and my wife will play a song and we give it, we rate it. 
Uh-huh. And it's just something fun that we do with one another. So you're an author of several books. I mean, there's the Cornbread series. How, tell us how many books you've published. And then I want to talk about the one that you brought with you. Okay. So I have a total of 11 books. 11 books, um, six in the Cornbread series. Uh, the very first book that I was telling you about, that's Rhythmic Reading. I have a poetry book. And the one that I have in front of me now, this is where it all started. With me, this is a book that I wrote for teachers called If Instruction Isn't Engaging, I Quit. So let me break this down. First of all, when I told my mom the title of my book, she was like, oh, sweetie, I don't think you should name it that. You don't want the kids to quit. I said, no, mom, it's not that. I'm literally putting pressure on myself as a teacher saying that we must bring whatever we need to bring to that classroom and instruct with instruction to ensure that our 12th graders are not dropping out of school. Our first and second graders are not being totally disengaged when we're teaching. So. I just go over different strategies, 10 strategies where teachers can find ways to engage their students. So run us through some of those, because I know that, I mean, there's a lot of educators out there. It's mid-year. Some teachers are working in really difficult environments, and it is hard Mm -hmm. to stay motivated and enthused. Okay. Well, one that I mentioned earlier, just being a culturally responsive teacher. You can't can't just look at a curriculum and feel like, okay, let me just teach this standard. Let me teach this benchmark. No, you have to look and see who's in front of you see what they love, and cater your instruction around them. And no textbook is built that way. So you can only see a standard, but then you have to modify how you're going to teach this lesson to address the students in front of you. The second one, and I would say this is probably, I'm going to get to that one last. The next one Mm -hmm. is teacher enthusiasm. You can't expect for a student to be excited about your lesson. Yes, you stayed up all weekend, um, hours, trying to put this masterpiece lesson together, but you can't expect for a student to get excited about it if you yourself is not excited about it. So when I go into a classroom, it's performance time. I want you to go crazy. Matter of fact, when I finish teaching that lesson, I want to hear that sigh. Uh, Do we have to leave? That means I've done something with education. But the most important way I feel that we can engage students is building a rapport. When you have a relationship with your students, they will not only do your work, but they will work hard for you. And I've found so much success just by developing a rapport with my students. We're talking to Vincent Taylor, educator, author, and uh, creator of the Cornbread series uh, and real inspiration for teachers. Um, If you have a question for him, you can give us a call at 904-549-2937. You can also email us at firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. You can message us on Facebook and Instagram and tag us on X at FCC on air. Vincent, I know you've been doing other kinds of outreach recently with the mayor's literacy initiative. Yes. Um, so she got involved. You you involved with that, I think, largely because you just are such a inspiring persona when you go into a room. Right. I mean, I think what the mayor realizes, just as I said earlier, it's not just about, OK, we have to pick up this book and read. She wanted to add an element to the opening of this event to let students see, okay, how can we get them excited about reading? You know, I did a presentation and someone said, well, before the presentation, they said, well, what book are you going to read at your presentation? I said, well, I'm not going to read a book. I'm going to tell you about the book and we're going to talk about how this could be exciting to get them excited about picking up any book because cornbread is not just the best book in the world or any book that I write. All books are great. So we, as uh, the person who's standing in front of our audience, have to find a way to get our audience excited about it. So that's what I did, and I think that's why I was there. And there are some real serious literacy challenges in Jacksonville, part of what the mayor is trying to address. Yes. Um, is it, is, are there any special techniques for reaching kids who, who haven't been raised around books, who maybe have very minimal skills in order to get them feeling confident enough and feeling like, capable enough to take on the task of of learning to read or learning to read better? Yeah, I think one of the most important things would be finding literature um, that they enjoy, first of all. You know, when they go to school, they may not have as many choices, but when they're at home, this is where the parent is so, the parent is very instrumental. Getting that student that book that they love. If it's comic books, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. just get them reading and excited about that. Because what happens is they are able to now practice their fluency, reading with expression, 
They also exposed to a lot of vocabulary. So it's helping them in ways that they or their parents may not even realize because they're reading what they want to read. So when they go to school, it transfers over to I can read whatever the teacher puts in front of me and I can pull out the main idea. I can use context to clues to figure out this other word. As a matter of fact, I probably know the word because I've read that particular word in the books that I enjoy at home. Mm-hmm. If somebody wants to get in touch with your resources, an educator or a parent or, you know, someone who's just interested in knowing a little bit more about you and the and the books that you've written, how can they get in touch with you? Where can they find you? Um, my website is vincenttaylor.com. Um, but social media, all my social media is Vince the Writer. Vince the Writer. Okay. And I don't think we're going to be able to play the little sa- sa- uh, sample of the performance. Okay. I'm sorry. No problem. It looks no like problem. the file that I pulled is not working. <laughs> but um, people definitely should Google Vincent Taylor and find him on Facebook because they're really charming performances and Thank so you. fun to watch. Thank you. Thank you. Um, have you fully abandoned your uh, aspirations of becoming a, a professional rapper? Is that something? Yes, in the past? that's gone. That's gone. So I do it through education, you know, in the classroom. That that part is gone. No more Prince Vince. No. <laughs> I listen to some of the Prince Vince stuff, but no, we won't bring him out. And you play it for your kids? All the time. Yeah. yeah. They like it? They Matter of fact, I just played a song yesterday for my daughter. And she was like, wow, this needs to be on the radio right now. But, you know, that was then and it was a lot of fun. But now I have a, a different goal. I have a different goal and I'm trying to reach students who are, you know, reluctant readers and who's just not excited about instruction. And I think I can better reach them. Um through music in the classroom now. Well, I'm sorry that it wasn't featured on the radio today because it was my intention. Um, But uh, Vince Taylor, thank you so much for being here, for joining us and for all the work that you do in the community um, for helping elevate the cause of education and reaching kids. You are welcome. It was my pleasure being here. And we will have a link to that performance in our show summary at wjct.org. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Vincent Taylor. Up next, what star-crossed lovers exist in the heavens? Congaree Pen, dedicated to agriculture and culinary endeavors, offering field-to-fork dining and outdoor experiences on over 300 acres. Sip, dine, explore. Information at congareeandpen.com. Vickers Landing offers elegant retirement living in the heart of Ponte Vedra Beach. Our sawgrass and oak bridge campuses feature amenities galore, resort lifestyle, comprehensive security, and plans for every stage of aging. Retirement redefined. VickersLanding.com. WJCT Public Media and the Jacksonville Music Experience presents Black Opry Review, live on the WJCT soundstage on Thursday, February 15th at 7 p.m. A celebration of the diversity and versatility of country music, the Nashville-based collective has been praised by Rolling Stone, NPR, and more. Tickets and more information at jacksmusic.org events. a new professional hockey league bringing some new talent onto the ice. Whenever I watch hockey, it's usually like the Bruins and there's never any woman playing on the ice. I'm Carolyn Beeler. This new women's league with six teams is looking to make an impact in North America and beyond. That's next time on The World. This afternoon at 3, here on WJCT News 89.9.
attitudes toward the use of psychedelics are changing. And some of the most persuasive arguments are being made by the people who've served our country or are still serving. Now Congress has approved a new law that funds clinical trials using psychedelic substances to treat active duty members of the military. We'll find out why that's next time on 1A. Today, starting at 10 on WJCT News 89.9. Welcome back. Valentine's Day is just around the corner. And if the thought of stuffed bears and stuffed chocolates makes you cringe a little bit, <sighs> take a walk outside and look up. From binary stars to merging galaxies, February's evening sky is showing us some love. We're joined now by resident spaceman and director of the Brian Gooding Planetarium, Eddie Whistler. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Thanks for being here. You're welcome. Eddie, you have a really cool Valentine's Day event that you've curated cleverly titled Matches Made in the Heavens. Yes, yes. Uh, talk about this and tell us what cosmic couplings inspired the theme. Yeah, so, you know, when we look out into the universe, we're surprised often. Um, and we just see couplings happening at different scales, like in some cases really monumental scales and other, you know, more humdrum, just uh, local neighborhood of stars type scales. And so... Um, just kind of want to want to point at some of those places where binaries and couples are spinning off inside of the universe, the ultimate, uh, the ultimate matchmaker. Mm -hmm. Um, and just kind of, you know, look at that and, uh, and, and just, uh, create some kind of a parallel to our daily lives. Maybe, you know, innuendo filled as well uh -huh. might creep inside of the, uh, inside of the program. Give us that example if you can. Uh, so, Okay. When and most people don't know this, and this is a shiny new finding for a lot of people. When you go outside, you look up at the nighttime sky and we see these individual points of light and those are stars. OK, they're like our sun, just much farther away. But the reality of those points of light is that over half of these are actually multiple star systems, binary, uh, three star systems, multiple star systems that we see as a single point of light. But when you look up, you can flip a coin on any one that you're unfamiliar with. And about half the time, you'll be looking at a multiple star system that looks like a single point of light. Your eye is impo It's impossible for your eye to resolve the multiple stars, but that's why we build ourselves instruments that are far more powerful than your measly face telescopes. <laughs> measly you know what face I mean? Like these things... Our eyes are just not very accurate instruments to tell us about how the universe really is. And so, you know, there's no shortage of couples out there in the universe. So these are things that you can show us on the planetarium screen, so to speak. You can point them out and have people see them with a greater accuracy. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, there's uh, it's 2024. 20, there's amazing CGI that we can bring in and just... Um, you know, run time lapse. We can show a billion years or measly millions of years or hundreds of thousands of years in fast forward over the course of a couple seconds. And at different time scales, different patterns kind of work themselves out. So you're really bringing to life what's happening out in the universe and these occurrences uh, that we are learning about day by day. So this match is made in the heavens is actually part of a series that you do that really is kind of designed for grownups. Tell us about that. Uh, yeah. So it's suggested 13 and up. You know, sometimes we have younger kids that come in. It's, they're, they're amazing as well. But um, it's really made for, uh, you know, more adults. We have programming that should be for, uh, you know, adults. And I don't have to unpack the same language that I would, even with an audience that isn't astro um Conversant. Yes. <laughs> you sometimes just by being an adult, there is language that we can we don't have to unpack. We can just roll right through it. And uh, so that's fun for me to do, as is uh, teach, uh, you know, showing programming to audiences of young kids. But all the same, get them in. There's six of them a year every other month. And February is one of those months. So. And so this particular event is at. Uh, Mosh is at seven o'clock. Is that right? On on the ninth, which is that's Friday. We're, we're going to open up those doors to the planetarium right at seven. Get started shortly thereafter. The doors to the museum. Like if you're a if you're a ticket holder and you're going to come and join us as a guest, 
then doors to the museum open at 630. Okay. And do you encourage people after doing a a night at the planetarium to kind of go mimic their experience in the night sky? How much of that are they able to to see and appreciate after being there? Oh, my gosh. When when you're opening up your when you get some new idea in your mind, something that you may have seen several times before all of a sudden takes on this new character. And so you understand something new about the universe. Now you're going to look up at the same nighttime sky that you did the night before, but now we've given you a target, at least one thing that you could see in the nighttime sky, and you just see it much more clearly. Even though it's just a single point of light, you know more about it, and it becomes more beautiful. You become more interested in it. And we just want to I just want to open up your cranium and light fires at will. That's really the idea. We want to start fires. We don't want to instill and pour in information. We just want to get people motivated to look up and see something new. Eddie Whistler, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate your insights. And we're going to see you again at the end of the month in another installment of Spaced Out with Eddie Whistler. Yes, this is awesome. This is, uh, this is, we're gonna, I'm going to be with you once a month every, uh, every month for well, 2024. We're so looking forward to it. Thanks for doing that. And that's our program. We welcome your feedback and suggestions for future conversations. If you missed anything today, you can catch the rebroadcast at 8 o'clock tonight or find today's show at wjct.org and on your favorite podcast platform. The executive producer of First Coast Connect is David Luckin. Our producer is Stacey Bennett. Kathy Waterman is our associate producer and our show is directed by Brady Corum. Join us again Thursday when we discuss a $5,000 federal tax credit now being considered that could reimburse working caregivers. I'm Ann Schindler. You've been listening to First Coast Connect on WJCT News 89.9. Support for First Coast Connect is provided by Baptist Health and the North Florida TPO.